you can avoid getting into the situation where you, you go anaerobic. You stop right before you have to use your oxygen-independent sources of metabolism. And we've seen where people can do this, um, that they can do many more intervals than they could otherwise because they're not burning the matches. They're not using up their oxygen-independent stores of metabolism. That Triathlon Show, episode 85. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I have a really, really cutting-edge interview for you with a scoop about the sub-two-hour marathon at the end, by the way, and uh, that's a bit of a, of a side note, but it was uh, really interesting, I found. Anyway, I hope that you've listened to my previous episodes on related topics. Those are episode 79 on lab testing for triathletes and episodes, episode 71 on the physiology of the aerobic and anaerobic thresholds and how they impact your training zones. Those are related listening to this one. And if you have listened to them and know this stuff, then this episode will be even more meaningful to you. And you'll see how you can start to train according to your to your physiology on a day-by-day or even second-by-second basis and and you'll see what happens in your working muscles at all times not just based on surrogates for what's happening in your body that power pace and heart rate they really are just surrogates for what we think is happening based on on a test that you've you've done at some point but we don't actually know what's happening in your muscles just using using that they're best guesses and they can be really really good but what actually happens inside your body may vary. So this is definitely cutting edge and the next step. How do you do this? What's this about? Well, my guest Roger Schmitz from Moxie Monitor will explain how using the Moxie device and uh, muscle oxygen saturation, you can get this insight into your physiology at all times. The Moxie Monitor is a very small device that you can put under your bike shorts, for example, and it continuously measures that muscle oxygen saturation, the SMO2, which can really inform you about things like optimal training and racing intensities on that second-by-second basis. So some very useful points that we'll cover are how this is different from traditional lactate testing or metabolic testing. Uh, it's probably not clear to you right away, but we'll cover that in detail so you understand it. And we'll cover how using the Moxie device has helped athletes massively increase the number of intervals that they can do in high-intensity workouts. And I found this to be one particularly interesting point in this interview and, and a highlight definitely for myself. And uh, you'll learn how measuring your SMO2 muscle oxygen saturation can tell you what exactly your physiological limiters are. Is it the oxygen delivery or the utilization of the the oxygen or even your cardiac or respiratory function? And that's something that's pretty new and cutting edge as well. And obviously there's a lot more to this interview. But first, a word from our sponsors... Precision hydration. Hydration and electrolyte depletion is one of the major limiters in endurance events and one that many athletes don't consider at all. Precision hydration have such a wealth of data on how athletes sweat that they've been able to build an algorithm-based questionnaire to deliver personalized hydration advice even for athletes that can't go to a 
a real physical sweat test. So go check that free sweat test out online on precisionhydration.com. It's linked to down below in the show notes as well. And if you want to buy any of their products, use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, for 15% off. And we're also supported by Ventum. The Ventum 1 is a super bike that's based on wind tunnel testing. Uh, it's been proven to be more aerodynamic than other super bikes. You can read all about it on VentumRacing.com. And that's also where you can order one for your, yourself. They ship all over the world. And in the US and Canada, you can get a delivered bike with bike fit and building it up as another added bonus. And there's still some time to get one for Christmas. Plus, they give you 110% off the value of your current bike towards the purchase of a new Ventum bike. All right, let me just give you a short, quick introduction to my guest today, Roger Schmitz. He is the co-founder and CEO of MoxiMonitor. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Iowa State and uh, lives in Hutchinson, Minnesota. He has a long background in technology development in automated machinery and medical devices as lead design engineer. With his co-founders at Moxie, they started development in 2010 and launched in 2013. And as you'll notice, Roger now is a real expert in the physiology of endurance training and other sports as well for that matter. And Moxie today is the leading and dare I say only company out there that develops a device like this that endurance athletes can use to get real-time feedback on what's happening in their body with their physiology. Some of you will ask, so I'll preempt the question about BSX Insights. Uh, they've announced that they'll stop supporting that product, which had kind of a similar idea to Moxie's product, a bit different, but, but there are very much some similarities between them. And BSX Insights users have rightfully so been pretty infuriated by that because their investment will, in a year or so, when the the support stops completely, it will be not much more than an expensive piece of electronic garbage. Uh, and if you Google BSX, Moxie, DC Rainmakers, stuff all those keywords in there, you'll find a write-up by the good old Ray on DC Rainmaker on that story if you want to learn more. Anyway, this isn't about BSX, but I just wanted to mention that since I've had interactions with readers in the past or listeners about the BSX insights. So that's the status of that. It's uh, definitely not uh, a positive status, but Moxie is here to stay. And I'm very pleased to have had this opportunity to learn a lot from this interview with Roger Schmitz, and I hope you'll do the same. So tonight I'm happy to welcome Roger Schmitz from Moxie Monitor to That Triathlon Show. How are you today, Roger? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's really brilliant. We've it's uh, very very timely as well because uh, in the last few weeks we've uh, first started with uh, an episode on the different thresholds, and then we moved on to lab testing, lactate. Uh, testing and and respiratory testing, metabolic testing, and now we're moving on to the real up and coming next gen kind of testing and zones and physiological measurements with Moxie monitor. So it's a nice progression, and uh, yeah, I'm very happy to to have you and learn more myself about Moxie because uh, I know what you do at a surface level, but I'm uh, very intrigued as uh, for what. What, what the exact benefits are. But so can you tell us a little bit about Moxie or the Moxie Monitor, uh, what it is and uh, and what it does? 
Sure. Yeah. So first of all, uh, thanks for for uh, pulling together those other programs uh, with the background science. That's really awesome information to have available uh, and really helpful. So it's a it's a great a great lead into this. So Moxie is a muscle oxygen monitor, and it's going to measure the uh, percentage of hemoglobin and myoglobin that's carrying oxygen in the capillaries and in the tissue of the muscle. And in, in that part of the muscle, that's right where the oxygen is being consumed. And so by, by measuring there, we can get an indication of the balance between supply and demand for oxygen in the muscle. And, and, and we do this while the athlete is actually performing their sport. What does it look like? So you have a device then, and, and how, how does it work in practice? Yep. So the, the device is, uh, it's a small wearable device. Uh, it's completely wireless. Um, and, and you wear it over a large working muscle. So for a cyclist or a runner, a lot of times that ends up being the vastus lateralis, which is one of the four muscles of the quadriceps. So kind of on your thigh. Um, runners may also wear it on the hamstrings or on the calf. Uh, for swimmers, uh, sometimes they'll wear it on their back or some part of their arm as uh, you know, we want to, we want to be on that, on that largest working muscle. Um, so this, then the sensors, often at times it's attached with tape or sometimes it's just tucked under the compression shorts. It just needs to be held in contact with the skin um, in, in order to, in order to wear it. But it's, it's small enough that most people just forget they have it on. Once you get it attached, it's, it's just, you know, part of your body. And then in, in the, comparison the, to like a Garmin, Garmin watch or something, how, how big is it? Oh, it's it's um, it's about the size of the of the bigger garments, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. So it's uh, about that kind of size and shape. All right. So so we measure measure the the muscle oxygen and uh, how is that beneficial? Um, so there's there's quite a lot we can do with the information. You really get a rich set of of information about the athlete's physiology out of that. And we, we kind of break this into several categories. So we can do assessments. So similar to like what you do with like the lactate threshold or the VO2 max test, we, we can have the athlete in a lab and do an assessment. Uh, the goal of the assessments is to identify what aspect of their physiology is limiting their performance. But then it doesn't, we're, we're, the MOXIE is really different than those other technologies is that then you can use the same device in the field. So you can use it to guide your daily training. And that's really the, the second application we look at is, is um, guiding your training on a daily basis. So you can use it for interval training, you know, long, slow distance recovery, all, uh, all different aspects of, of daily training. And then you can even use it in competition. So we have people that are using it to help optimize their race pace, for example. Yeah. And to make that clear for all the listeners. So you may think that, hang on, isn't that what we're doing if we do a lab test or even just a field test, like an FTP test. Uh, but the difference here is that if you if you go to a lab and you measure certain variables like your, your lactate in, in your blood, for example, then you get a heart rate or a pace or a power that uh, is associated with a certain lactate level. But you don't know actually when you later go and train if your lactate level at that power is the same as it was in the test situation. So that's what, what Roger is saying here. Is that correct? That that now you can really, on a day-to-day -day basis, account for all potential variations that may, may arise in, in that uh, muscle oxygen uh, supply and demand, really. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the... That's really the, uh, the the breakthrough with using this technology is is you're not you you don't have to do a test in a lab and then use some surrogate 
uh, in the field. You use the same the same device uh, in both cases, and really, it starts to blur the lines between what's training and what's an assessment. Uh, you know, because because essentially, you can do assessments from your daily data. You can go out and do a ride and and say, oh, you know, in, on this particular day, uh, you know, I I could observe certain aspects of my performance were limited by by the cardiac system, and and so you can observe that in a and, and you can get daily feedback on that, um, kind of as it happens. So it, although we still do assessments, there's there's times when you want to have really controlled conditions um, to to try and learn specific things. It really starts to blur the the separation between an assessment and daily training. Yeah, uh, I read DC Rainmakers right up on uh, on Moxie, and when he did that test, so that that's I think a good article to link to that the listener can go oh. and have a look at for for how. An assessment. What what an assessment might look like with with Moxie. You mentioned limiters uh, in physiology there, so you can find out what your physiological limiters are. What are some examples of what they might be, and and how could you find them with Moxie? Yeah, this is this is a bit of a new concept. It's been around for a while, but with the Moxie, it really becomes becomes practical to use the concept. So the idea is, uh, you know, if you're a cyclist and um, when you transition from a power that's below your FTP to a power that's above your FTP, something you know something reached its limit. Um, there's a reason why you can't maintain that power above your FTP like you can when it's just you know a few a few watts lower. And when we so when we talk about the limiter, we're figuring out which system in the body is is causing that to happen, uh, you know, causing you to not be able to perform at that higher power level. And the three that we typically look for with the MOXIE are the respiratory system, the cardiac system, and the muscular system. And it doesn't mean, we're not saying if it's a limiter, we're not saying if it's good or bad. Somebody that's a couch potato has a limiter and somebody that's a Olympic level athlete also has a limiter. We're not, we're not saying, you know, level of performance. We're just saying when you go as fast as you can go, which system hits its limit first. And uh, which one of those is typical for age group athletes? Is there a typical or is it all across the board? It's it's really across the board. It's kind of it's a it amazes me how different athletes really are when we when we look at these plots. Um, you'll have some people when they're going as hard as they can go uh, in one of these assessments, and they won't desaturate. They'll be up at you know seventy five eighty percent saturation, and no matter how hard they go, they can't get it to drop below that. And that's kind of an extreme case of a mus a muscle limitation. Their muscles can't use all of the oxygen that the rest of their body is capable of delivering. And then you will see the flip side. We'll see somebody that, you know, when they're right at their FTP or even a little bit below it, they're desaturated down to, you know, 10% or well, maybe 20%. 10% is really low. Um, and, and that's an indication that, uh, well, they have a really good muscle uh, oxidation uh, or muscle oxidative capacity uh, in their muscles, but but their body can't deliver as much oxygen as what their muscles can use, and so in age group athletes, it's it's just across the board. You know, any any of those limitations can show up. And and how can you see the uh, the respiratory system limitation? Is yep. that uh, anything that you can see in the saturation data? Yeah. Well, so so the the Moxie measures two parameters. It measures the saturation and the total hemoglobin, and and so. The, when it's a when it's an oxygen delivery issue, that means either the cardiac system or the respiratory system can't get enough oxygen to the muscles. In both of those cases, we tend to see low SMO two. But the we, we and, look and to SMO two is uh, 
saturation it, of muscle yes. oxygen. Yeah. Yep, is the is the muscle oxygen saturation. Yep. The the THB is really an indication of the blood volume in the muscle, or that's that's how we use it to interpret the data. And we can use that to differentiate. So when you're seeing low saturations, low SMO2, uh, we look to the THB data, and if you see indications of vasodilation, um, you see the blood vessels opening up, you see blood volume expanding in the muscle, that's an indication that the body has sufficient blood flow, um, but you have vasodilators building up. And that's typically because you're not getting rid of the CO2 fast enough. And that's, that's a powerful vasodilator. And we see, we see these, these vasodilation effects. If we see the flip side, if we see vasoconstriction, uh, you know, the, the blood volume going down, that's the body taking um, action or, uh, to restrict blood flow so that it preserves blood pressure for the brain. So the body's really um, really protective of blood flow for the heart and brain. It'll shut down everything else in order to keep blood going to the heart and brain. And if, if you're using more blood than the, or your, your muscles want more blood than the heart can pump, then we see that vasoconstriction. So that's how we differentiate between the respiratory and the cardiac when it's a supply limitation. Yeah, very, very interesting. And let's not go into too much detail on this, but you already alluded to this a little bit of how you use the 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 muscle oxygen saturation to see how when it goes up and and that indicates that you have you have oxygen supply and then it goes down and then your demand takes over so can you explain in two minutes how how that works on a, on a high level and then the interested listener can go and have a deeper read about it on on your website but but just on a high level how, how does that work yeah, so so the the simplest way to think of that saturation is just uh, as that measure between uh, a measure of the balance between supply and demand. So if your body can deliver more oxygen to the muscles than what the muscles can use, that means supply exceeds demand, then the SMO2 goes up and vice versa. If the muscles are wanting to use more oxygen than the body can deliver, that SMO2 goes down. And and essentially the amount of oxygen that you're using in the muscle is 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 how much is extracted times the blood flow rate so so it's actually more efficient in in some in some aspects to have to have low oxygenation in the muscle because then for every heartbeat you're taking a lot of oxygen off of the blood and using it to to do work and um, so, so we, we typically like to see that that low oxygen in the muscle because that means your muscles are able to use it and it's and it's efficient use of your blood flow so when you see a saturation curve go down, that's when you start getting to a point when it will potentially at, at some point become unsustainable and, and your performance will drop. Is that correct? Yeah, and that, that varies from athlete to athlete. Some there there is kind of a there is a point where you learn how you respond when you when you get to that unsustainable point and, and athletes will respond differently. But that that is a common response is that you'll get to a point where you know the SM2 is going down, down a little bit, and then suddenly it goes down a lot more as you increase the load. And yeah, that's a that's one of the indications that that you've uh, gotten to a point where where you can't sustain the load anymore. Okay, uh, got it. So let's move on to comparing this. We already did to some extent compare this with with lab testing and using surrogates like heart rate and power, uh, and uh, and associating them with certain physiological measurements that can be taken in lab. But uh, other than that, how 
how is this different from from using training zones for example from a training perspective how how is this different from from using that and and how is it better if, if it is be- be- better do can you talk about that a little bit yeah yeah i think um so so it the way it's better is mainly that the the information is much richer. You get much more useful, actionable information when using the Moxie than when you would than what you would get from like a lactate threshold test. Um, so, like with with the lactate threshold test, essentially, you know, if you're familiar with the history here, uh, people measure lactate because they're trying to figure out what's going on with the oxygen in the muscle, and um, and in the past, you know, before devices like Moxie existed, um, it it wasn't possible to measure that directly. So people measured lactate as this indirect indication of what was going on in the muscle, and it worked. And it, but it was because they could do it. You know, they had the technology to be able to measure the blood and determine the lactate. Uh, but it's it's much more indirect. It's about it's about reading about it's it's like reading about the sporting event the day after it happened rather than watching it live. With the with the Moxie, you can see live what's going on in the muscle. And and not um, not have to wait for this this lactate response, which is much more uh, difficult to interpret than than yeah, interpreting muscle oxygen. Yeah, that's one thing that we talked about with with Alan Cousins, who was the guest who talked about uh, lab testing. That yeah. many labs they don't have long enough ramps, and that makes it very very uh, conducive to errors and uh, and incorrect interpretations. If the lab wants to maximize the number of tests that they run, so they have two short ramps on each intensity, and and then you don't get the lactate to stabilize, especially when you take into consideration that you actually take the blood sample from somewhere that's not the the working muscle you don't take a blood sample from the thigh for example if you're doing a, cy- a cycling test it may, may be an earlobe or a finger or something so so there's yeah. a delay there as well as you mentioned well and there's there's really two delays um that, that in that lactate situation you know one is that there's the physiologic delay of how long does it take the body to reach homeostasis at a new load and that's typically on the order of three to five minutes to even get close um and then the next delay is then the lactate has to circulate through the body so that you can measure in the finger to try and infer what happened back at the muscle. So with, with the assessments that we do for Moxie, we actually typically recommend five-minute step lengths, uh, which is longer than a lot of the, a lot of the um, other types of assessments recommend. And that's, that's to really help us get to that homeostasis point. And what's, what's nice is you're not drawing blood and you're not um, you're able to get data continuously through through the the entire test. You're not just getting it at discrete points. So it's it's more practical to have those longer load steps when 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 we're doing those kinds of assessments. Yeah, yeah. What about when you compare to uh, to respiratory testing or, or metabolic testing? When you have you can have a continuous measurement. How how does Moxie compare to that kind of testing? Yeah, so the, there's there's actually some complementary information, and and a lot of our users, a lot of, a lot of our more serious training centers, will use both the the VO2 testing and and the Moxie. So you can get more detailed information about what's going on in the respiratory system um, when when you're when you also measure with the VO2. But the the limitation there is, you know, it's just not really practical to wear a mask during during regular training, even with the portable VO2 machines. They're expensive and and um, and, and a lot of the information that you get out of the VO2, you you can infer out of the Moxie, but of course it's it's better to get it direct from the from the metabolic cart if you can. 
Okay, yeah. yeah. And just one thing that I want to remind the listeners of that may not remember every single detail from the previous episodes is that uh, obviously in lactate testing that we just talked about, you take a limited number of samples uh, on in a ramp test. So so that's why you you only get a partial picture of what's happening inside the body with, with a delay effect. And, and that's why we're talking about these, these kinds of differences. So when you when you do your do an assessment with Moxie, you get some sort of training zones. How do you like to establish training zones based on an assessment and ba- based on oxygen saturation in, instead of uh, instead of the other traditional markers that have been used in labs? Yeah, we we try to um, we try and measure the zones directly rather than calculating them from a fixed point. So a lot of times, like someone will calculate an FTP and then they'll say your zones are some percentage of your FTP. Um, so we typically break it into three zones. The, the low intensity zone is the, we call it the oxygenating zone. And that's where um, the harder you go, actually, the higher your oxygenation gets. And, and then we have a middle zone, which we call homeostasis. So that, that's when supply exceeds demand. Still. Exactly. Yep. So it's like you're still warming up. And, if, in, and at some, if, if you're at a low enough intensity, you won't fully warm up you won't get to a point where, where your blood vessels are fully dilated and, and you won't maximize your SMO2. You might, you might only get up to 80% and you won't go any higher. And if that's the case, then you're still in that oxygenating zone. Then at, at some point you get to an intensity where, yep, you'll, your body will fully warm up. You'll, you'll reach your peak, what, whatever your peak is for you. And typically that's you know, 85 to maybe 95%, maybe 80 to 95% um, is, is as high as uh, some person might get. But when you're of, in that- Of FTP or of uh, what? Uh, the, the oxygen saturation. No, of, oh, yeah, saturation. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the SMO2 gets to somewhere like 80 to 95%. And that, that would be a typical high point. Um, there's cases outside of that, but um, most people would be in that range. And, and that will sustain over a range of loads. So you can increase the load and your oxygenation really doesn't change much. And we call that homeostasis because your body can just deal with it. You know, you up the load and yep, you up the heart rate just enough and everything just stays in balance. And so there's a range of, of loads that you're in homeostasis. And so that's what we call that zone. And then you get to a point where if you go harder, your body has to extract more oxygen to keep supplying the load. Now, this doesn't mean that you're over your FTP necessarily. Some people would be over their FTP at that point, to use a cycling term, um, or, or a critical pace for a running term. Um, but, but it does mean that something's changing. Your body is, is changing how it adapts to that increasing load. And we call that the deoxygenating zone. And then as you keep going further and further, you know, higher and higher intensity, uh, you'll see the, that you'll deoxygenate further and further. Okay. Uh, so, so how do you use them, them in training then? Do, you, do they relate somehow to, uh, to the aerobic and anaerobic thresholds that are often used to kind of base workouts around? Or, or how, how do your users typically use these zones? We, we, we tend to use them directly because um, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's lots of baggage with the terminology of the, of the threshold. So we, just, uh, we, we tend to just use that, that information directly. And so one example is if you were going to do a, a recovery ride or a recovery run, um, we would typically do that at the very low end of the homeostasis zone. So kind of on that transition between oxygenating and homeostasis. And that gets you in a situation where you're minimizing the stress, you're doing the lowest intensity 
uh, that you can, but still keep the oxygenation as high as you can. And so that's perfect for recovery. You're getting you know, really good blood flow to the muscles, lots of oxygen to the muscles, but you're not inducing any more stress than, than is necessary. So, so using that, that transition point to guide recovery is, is really good. If you're going to do something like what, what you might call a threshold pace or a, um, a threshold power where, where you want to be kind of right on the edge of as, of, uh, of as fast as you can go, then you'd be at the other end of that homeostasis. You'd want to go, uh, where if you went any harder, your oxygenation goes down. If you back off a little bit, uh, your oxygenation, uh, will pop back up. And if you're right on that edge, we can use that to, to guide that intensity as well. And what's, what's really nice about both of those is it may not be a fixed power. If you're, if you're not well recovered, um, you might have that transition at a lower power than what you would if you were fully recovered, or if it was a hot day, you might have that transition at a lower power, uh, than, than what you normally would. And one kind of an extreme example, we had one, uh, one anecdote that was related to me. Um, a rider had gotten really comfortable with finding that transition point. So he knew how hard he could go, um, without, you know, going over his, his FTP. Then he did some training in an altitude tent. And, and he was able to just use the moxie, that, that transition point that he had learned, uh, and he applied it in the altitude tent, although it was at a much lower power because of the simulated altitude. So that held up even though he was under very different conditions. And then he was able to train you know, effectively, even though it was at a very different power than what he would normally train at. That's very fascinating. Absolutely. And uh, so what about high intensity intervals when you go, go above uh, the traditional threshold and I understand that you want to move away from the traditional uh kinds of w kind of ways to to talk about training but but then again for the listeners it's easy to kind of have something to to relate to reference points so so it's good to have them both in here when as we talk about these things so so let's say talking about traditional like kind of vo2 max or, or high intensity intervals how, how would you do them if you do them with moxie yeah, so there, um, th you can. There's some really fascinating things you can do there. So, so um, a lot of times people will talk about these as anaerobic zones. You know, when you get into the high intensity, but but they don't have to be, and you can manage them uh, really well uh, by, by using the the moxie to guide it. So one example is if you're going to do a, if you're going to do high intensity intervals, you know, say you're going like nearly all out, um, but you want to be able to do a lot of them over and over again. If you watch your SMO2, so you start out doing the high intensity, your SMO2 is going to drop, drop, drop because you're way over your FTP. And, and as soon as your uh, SMO2 reaches its low plateau, so and that might be around 20% for some people, you know, maybe as high as 50% for other people, but you'll know, you know, you'll learn quickly what, how low you can typically go. And as soon as you get there, you stop and then you recover until you're your SMO2 gets back up to its recovery point, you know, in the 80s or 90s. And then, then once it's recovered, you can go again. If you use that method, you're actually staying aerobic because the whole time you're doing the high intensity interval, your oxygen is going down. And that means you're using all of the oxygen that your body can deliver, plus you're using oxygen that's stored in the muscle. That's, that's the myoglobin aspect of what we measure. And, and so by doing that, you can avoid getting into the situation where you, you go anaerobic. You stop right before you have to use your oxygen-independent sources of metabolism. And we've seen where people can do this, um, that they can do many more intervals than they could otherwise because they're not burning the matches. They're not using up their oxygen-independent stores of metabolism um, so that they're able to stay aerobic uh, while they're doing this. And so that's a way to, to guide your 
uh, interval training to be as to, to, to try and maximize your oxygen utilization capacity of your muscles. That's yeah, that, that's really good. I, I knew there was a story in there in that yeah. question, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm really, really fascinated then by we, that, we, and, and can see, can see the great benefits from that. Yeah. Then there's there's another aspect um, uh, that that uh, where if your if your goal is is would be to um, to stress your cardiac system. So if that was if that was your ideal, uh, you would want to set your interval intensity so that you could maintain it for something like five minutes. So you would, you would, uh, you would tweak your intensity so that your, your SMO2, rather than dropping in like 30 seconds or, you know, 45 seconds, like it would, if you're going all out, you would adjust the intensity so that you would go from peak SMO2 to your low plateau over a period of like five minutes. That gives your cardiac system enough time to get fully up to speed and you're going over your FTP. So you're working your cardiac system as hard as you possibly can. And then you stop and let that recover. So again, you're staying aerobic because you're not, you're not continuing to do work after you've reached that low plateau, but you're giving your cardiac system enough time to get pegged, to, to really make that cardiac system work as hard as it possibly can. And so that's a, that's a way that you can target a particular system. Um, where if you were doing, if you're doing all out intensity, your cardiac never, your heart rate never gets up, you know, to the full intensity. It's uh, by the yeah. time, by the time you're done with the interval, your, your heart rate isn't even maxed out yet. So it's just another, another way where you can dial the training in to, to accomplish what you want to, rather than just, you know, leaving it to chance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very cool. So, how is there a pattern in how this typically changes the high-intensity intervals that that uh, people do in that your users do? Do they typically get a bit longer and with a bit lower intensity than they have been doing in the past, or do you have any sort of patterns, or is it really depending on the individual? It it depends a lot on the individual, but we will see. You know, the interval training is great for helping people uh, to improve their muscle oxidative capacity, and that's what we see is the people that do the interval training. They uh, and the people that really need to do interval training are ones that can't desaturate well, and and we we do see that they we, we you know we've got people that you do do the interval training for a few months and they go from not being able to desaturate at all to being able to uh, start to desaturate. So definitely. Yeah. yeah but, but what, what, what I mean is, is when you have somebody who's not a moxie user and let's say they go out on a track and do a six times three minutes with, uh, one and a half minute recoveries and on the run, let's say so, and they run really as hard as they can for those three minutes so they, they can sustain it for six repeats. How would a workout like that, is there a pattern in how a workout like that might look after they start using Moxie and start to, to see what actually happens to their, to their SMO2? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had that. Um, it's, uh, uh, we've seen that a lot with hockey players. They tend to do th those types of workouts. But, uh, uh, but yeah, that, those are the, the, uh, they tend to be able to do more controlled intervals or when they do the more controlled intervals, they can do more of them. And so instead of being done after, you know, five or 10 intervals, there's cases where they can do 20 or 30. They can, they can do intervals for like 30 or 45 minutes um, if they're well controlled. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, let me think how, yeah, this is an important question. How can triathletes uh, that are listening to this show get a moxie or get tested with it uh, what's your distribution model kind of and for which kind of athletes might it be a, a worthwhile investment yeah so um so for the types of athletes that it's worthwhile uh i would say you know if you want to improve 
if you want to, if you know, if you want to get faster, more, more efficiently, uh, you know, if you want to improve your performance more efficiently, then, then, uh, definitely it's something you should look at. And also if you want to learn more about yourself or learn more about your own physiology, then, then I think it's, it's also, you know, really important. You know, if you want to be more involved in your own training and, and understand how your body is reacting and, you know, learn to adapt to when you're fatigued and, and things like that. For those kinds of people, I think it's, it's really good to, to some extent, you know, if someone is like brand new to sport, you know, you're going from being a couch potato to just starting to exercise, it's probably not as useful. I, th- I think there's still some, some aspects of it that would be useful, you know, for guiding the interval training, for example, but, um, but almost anything you do in that case, you're going to get better. But for people that have trained a little bit, then I think, you know, being more effective, is is more helpful as far as you know where to go uh if you go to our website we have a training centers tab so we have certified training centers all around the world a lot of them do remote training uh so they'll take on remote clients and and the the way this works now with the the garmin and the training peaks uh you know you can go out for your ride or your run uh, or even your swim and the the data gets uh uh, stored on your Garmin and then it uploads to the cloud and then your coach can see that data, uh, you know, almost in real time, uh, just, you know, as soon as it's uploaded and they, they can give you feedback on your workouts. Um, so an athlete that wants to get hooked up with a training center, um, you, know, you know, we can, we can get you referred, uh, you know, contact us. We can, we can help make a referral for you as well to a, a training center that would be a good fit. Um, and then also, uh, you know, we do have some self-trained athletes and uh, we have some training materials that are available available for purchase on the website as well do you have any cool case studies of uh, athletes that have been using using moxie and and the improvements that they have seen from it that that you can actually attribute to the use of moxie um well so we have i'll I'll give you give you two uh one of our training centers out of uh, uh canada has 11 ironman triathlete and i think nine of them had personal records after they started using the moxie so um, definitely saw some some improvements there, and then another another interesting one is uh, uh, Nike has been working on the, a, a project to to try and achieve the first sub two hour marathon, and uh, they just had a documentary uh, posted on this on the National Geographic channel recently. And if you look close, you can see that they're using Moxie in in wow. that case. Yeah, so they so this is a scoop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, 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 they don't they don't talk about the Moxie. Uh, I wish they did, but they, they but. But uh, you can look that the the athletes are are wearing them on their quads, um, in yeah. in that, uh, and they they achieved two hours and twenty five seconds. So they're they're getting really close to the to breaking that two hour mark. Uh, and that was yeah. you know the previous record was like two hours two minutes and something. So they they really crushed it. But they didn't you know in in that in their first attempt there they didn't didn't break two hours yet. But uh, you know so that's a case where they're using it in in real real high end application. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, allegedly, that uh, Nike Vaporfly can uh, reduce the cost of uh, cost of oxygen by 4% uh, compared to other running shoes. There was just a peer-reviewed paper on that coming out related oh, to the yeah. Sub2 project. Yeah. And I also remember seeing just, just recently on the Stride Facebook user community, the Running Power Meter, that there was a photo of uh of the runners in the sub two project wearing a stride or at least one of them so okay uh, so yeah they're really cutting edge uh on that project cool yeah uh, so uh, yeah do you have anything to uh, to mention before we move into the rapid fire questions um 
No, just that, that this is something that uh, you know we're really excited to have people using, uh, and and really appreciate you taking the time to to dive into the science. That's really, uh, really what it takes to make use of this technology, and and uh, so it's it's great you're doing this. Yeah, yeah, I think what you mentioned with the training centers for most athletes listening to this, you really need to have somebody who who understands physiology and and how to really use this effectively to to get the most benefit. Just buying the device for many. Uh, would potentially be just a whole lot of more pre-charts but but if you so, some athletes actually know a lot of physiology and for them it might be perfect and or are very interested in learning and they can do that but but for others it sounds like it could be a massive benefit as long as you have somebody that help helps you interpret that and that doesn't even have to be a coach maybe you just get get like a report from the training center after you've done your your yeah. assessment and then you keep using the moxie or something like that that's just my take on this as a coach but but one thing that's that's important to always keep in mind is is we're not looking at getting more pretty charts we we're looking to get more results and and you need to learn how to use any data that you that you get yeah so rapid fire questions uh, roger what's your favorite book blog or resource related to endurance sports well, I'm a gadget guy, so I really love to read DC Rainmaker because he covers all of the tech, and I, I just I love to read that stuff. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I would say uh, focus and tenacity. So that's uh, when I decide I want to do something, I, I focus on that uh, solely, and I do what it takes to get it done. And what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? Well, I'm a mechanical engineer by training, and I wish I had done more work with programming because I find that I have a lot of need to program stuff, and, and it's, not, it's not something I'm really good at. I do a little bit of it, and I wish I was better at it. Yeah, the, that was me too when I was a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so useful for so many things. Everything needs programming these days. Yeah, yeah. And speaking about Alan Cousins, he has a blog post that uh, that that's uh, that's called something like "Why All Coaches Should Learn How to Program." Oh <laughs> so, yeah, it is incredibly yeah. valuable. I'm 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 my my one of my daughters is learning to program, so I, I'm really yeah, excited yeah, to see brilliant. that. All right. Uh, yeah, Roger, this has been really great. I'm uh, very thankful for you coming on the show and, and sharing some really cutting edge technology that has great potential use for, for triathletes with us on, on that triathlon show. So, so thank you for, uh, for taking the time to, to come on. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure as well. So that was a pretty technical interview. And uh, as always, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com to make more sense of it. If anything is left unclear, go check them out, thattriathlonshow.com. They will be packed with information and uh, images, screenshots of what we just discussed to make it very clear and understandable. And by the way, I've updated the website to make that as well even more clear. So that's scientifictriathlon.com. You can also find information now on my coaching, consulting, and the training plans on that website. And it's all easy to find and organized. So uh, yeah, check it out, scientifictriathlon.com. And that triathlonshow.com will get you to the podcast page on that domain. If you have any further questions about this topic, you can contact me or send me questions or about other topics, maybe questions that you want answered on a future Q&A episode. Send it to me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. That's Michael with a K. Or tweet me on Twitter, where my handle is at SciTriat. And the next episode, which will come out on Thursday, 
we welcome back Stephen Chung. It will be his third time on the show. Actually, the second interview, but the first one was uh, a two-part interview. And he will be here along with uh, uh, Armando Mastracci, who is the founder of Exert, which is a new and incredibly powerful and smart analytics platform and software suit, really, for especially bike training, but it also has great, great use cases for running with power. And I've been using Exert for some time now, just playing around with it and, and seeing what it's like, trying to learn all the new concepts, because the, there are so many new things there that is kind of reminiscent of things that you've seen in Training Peaks and WKO, but but they have their own take on it, and it's super, super smart. I moved from healthy skepticism through there might be something to this to now this is actually really, really, really useful. And the way that they can measure the stress of a workout in a non-traditional way by actually taking account in a, into account the strain of the workout and the difficulty of the workout, all those sorts of things. I really love it. One of the most interesting concepts, perhaps, is how you can use your MPA, maximum, maximum power available, either in real time or in planning races or training. So definitely stay tuned for that episode. It will be a doozy. And uh, yeah, that will be out on Thursday. So remember to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss any of the good stuff we've got coming out every Monday and Thursday. Even on Christmas Day, which is Monday, we'll have something for you. I don't yet know which episode it will be, but there will be an episode. Thank you. This episode was sponsored by Ventum Bikes, and uh, so thank you to them. The thing that surprises people most about the Ventum 1 is how well it rides. It's incredibly stiff, thanks to all that carbon fiber between the saddle and the pedals, and that's important for great handling, but also for safety, which made the Ventum 1 the first non-traditional bike that was tested to exceed the ISO gold standard testing for bikes and be approved for use in ITU long course races. And thank you also to Precision Hydration. Remember that one size fits all does not cut it when it comes to hydration. For example, Andy, the founder of Precision Hydration and former elite triathlete, loses nearly twice as much sodium as Johnny, the COO of Precision Hydration, who paddled for Great Britain and is a double world silver medalist. So they need completely different hydration products and strategies, which is why Precision Hydration offer products of various strengths to match your results from their free online sweat test. Again, that's algorithm-based, based on real-world data. Go on to precisionhydration.com and use the discount code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all one word, for 15% off any purchases. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.